Welcome to Discomfort Zone, a podcast that explores the leadership journey. We are a group of women from all corners of the globe who are avidly excited by the leadership journeys of women around the world. We're coming together to have conversations about what it means to be a leader, who can be a leader, exploring what the leadership self-growth journey feels like, delving into how emotions can empower leaders, exploring diversity in leadership and more. No matter who you are or where you're based, we welcome you to join us on the leadership journey. see the world through different lenses. Lenses formed by our values and personalities, our life experiences, the people around us, the interests we have, the places we work. These things make us who we are, influence our strengths and weaknesses, and most importantly, impact the ways in which we respond and react to the people and the world around us. These lenses form our conscious and unconscious biases, which place us in various positions of privilege and depression depending upon the context in which we flow through life. Today in the Discomfort Zone podcast, we're exploring the second part of a two-part series that considers diversity, inclusion, equity and belonging and its relevance to leadership. In the last episode, we delved into the experiences which we have had with unconscious bias on both the receiving and giving sides and how we strive to become more aware of our unconscious biases. This time, we're diving into the link between shame and facing or challenging our conscious and unconscious biases, how our biases impact the experiences of networking in different cultures, and how we can use awareness of diversity and inclusion when speaking with people of different values or worldviews to ourselves. We'll also touch on the professional benefits to organisations of adapting diverse and inclusive cultures. So without further ado, joining us today are... My name is Jodie. I am a marine researcher and I'm from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. My name is Nancy and I'm a remote sensing professor and I study uh, remote sensing of dryland ecosystems. Hi, my name is Paula Silva. I am a hydraulic engineer specialized in integrated water sources management. I work for Jacobs Engineering and I live in San Diego. Hi, I'm Roshni Sharma and I'm a special scientist who works for Frontier SI based in Sydney, Australia. And so this is part two of our discussion into lenses as comfort and discomfort zones, an exploration of diversity and inclusion, the assumptions that we make and how they shape the way that we interact with the people around us. The first question today, which follows on from the conversation that we had in our last episode around unconscious bias, is around the idea of shame. Some of you may have heard about Brene Brown, who is a shame researcher who delves into topics like vulnerability, creativity, and how these are related to the concept of shame. So the question that I'd like to delve into first here is how the concept of shame plays into how we hold ourselves back from doing the right thing because we judge ourselves or we judge others when people admit that they're wrong. Why are we hesitant sometimes to admit that we have unconscious biases and doing something about them. 
This is Nancy. This is a really interesting and really important question. And I was thinking about two things, or maybe three things that from my own experience that I could speak to. And one I think is just, we get so busy with our lives that we have lack of reflection and just reflecting on understanding where our judgment comes from. I think is one of the things that I've learned through HB5 because we've done so much practice towards reflecting and and reflection. And so I think just taking time to reflect on questions such as these and asking ourselves, what judgments are we bringing to the table when we're interacting with other people? Or what judgments are we bringing to the table when we go to work or what have you? The second thing is, if you're not reflecting, you probably just have a complete lack of awareness that you are making judgments or biases uh, towards something or someone. And then thirdly, I just say that one observation is, is that so many of us are taught to be all-knowing, that it's really hard to admit that we do have biases and that we may have been doing things wrong or perhaps not in the best way in the past. And I think that that's especially true for those of us that are in academia, where our training is always to be right or to always put the most polished product forward, including ourselves. And so I think, again, that probably circles back to just reflecting and and spending time thinking about what are the judgments that we're bringing along with ourselves. I really like what Nancy mentions about the reflection. And I would like to add that reflection also is linked to awareness, as Nancy said. And for me, bias means the most uh, important bias is, is towards yourself. And that, I think, is the answer to your question in terms of the vulnerability. So to really acknowledge that the way that you see yourself is biased, is probably built upon a image or an expectation from others or from society, that is really, really hard. So so it, it really shows vulnerability to recognize that maybe what you are and what you have been working for many years is something that you really didn't want to be or that you really didn't intend to be. So, so it's not easy. It's not easy to recognize that you have biases because starting with yourself, you do have biases. So the step of making yourself vulnerable and say, okay, this is me. And I recognize that probably part of what I am is not what I truly would like to become. If you don't do that first, then it's very hard to expect that you recognize the biases that you have in others. So, so that's why I think that is that is holding us back. The own the first step uh, of recognizing our own biases is what is holding us because then is when you are putting yourself as a vulnerable person that is subject also to be to be following or doing things that or being judged by yourself or by your closest family members or or your colleagues so it's it's not easy it's not easy to see yourself at the mirror and say who am i (laughs) hi jody here i actually really agree with both what nancy and paula just said i think some of it's really interesting what i would suggest is potentially there's um both an age and a gender component to this as well. 
And what I mean by that is I certainly think that it's depending on the stage in your life. I think that's what really comes in where you start to understand that maybe you have biases. And I agree with you, Paula, when you're talking about it, it's coming from confidence with yourself. And I do think that the confidence in yourself and the ability to genuinely love yourself seems to be very much, again, that age per se. It, it, it's linked intricately because you see generally as people are getting slightly older, they're maybe looking for a little bit more. They're looking for deeper. They're looking to understand themselves. And that in itself then starts to create this whole whirlwind of, okay, what is my opinions? How is that impacting other people as well? And then you can start looking inside. And I do think gender has a role to play in it because, and again, very generalization, but a lot of gentlemen that I talk with don't have a, um, an understanding of themselves or biases or where they're coming from. I think it's very much a female trait in general that we would overthink. And therefore that is how we get onto this path of why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this? Why, 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 why? Men certainly do it, but I think it comes a little bit later in life as well. The thing is, students these days are being really taught a lot of things about resilience and mindfulness and how to tap in and understand themselves. But also talking to these students at 15 years old, they're hating it because it's being forced down their throat. Make sure you practice gratitude. You have to have a gratitude journal. Show me at, at, at school every day that you've been practicing it. What happens if you're made to do something like that? Of course, you're not grateful because it's a, it's a homework activity. So the idea is, yes, introduce these concepts really young and maybe over time, we're going to get people that more, are more um, open and understanding of their biases um, and the cultures around them and what that actually means. But I think, Nancy, when you were talking about the understanding and the need to reflect, I think that's very true. We need to have that space and you also need to understand that actually you should be reflecting and not everyone is granted that or is at a stage where they've identified that there is an issue in the first place. It's Roshni here. I love what you've just said, Jodie, and I, I strongly feel that there is a gendered aspect to this and it may come down to the way that boys and girls are raised in terms of being able to admit that they were wrong. I also wonder whether there's an aspect of fear of change or fear of rocking the boat, because if you admit that you're wrong, oftentimes it does disrupt a relationship or the way that something's happening. If you admit that you're wrong, you're saying, I want to change things. And that can be difficult sometimes for others to see because it perhaps prompts them to think about themselves. And I don't think that as a, as a culture, whether it's in the Eastern culture or the Western culture, it's not the easiest thing to swallow. People tend to be afraid of change because it's uncomfortable or it's unknown. So I wonder whether taking the time to reflect and change is feared or discouraged um, sometimes or unconsciously because it does rock the boat. Jodie here. I think actually, Roshni, what you've just mentioned is really great. And I suspect sometimes... I think maybe what's happening is that something has changed in life, right? So if you think about what are the reasons that has ever caused you as you as an individual to reevaluate or to reflect, it's something that's really good or really bad, right? It's not the average day. It's, wow, I had a really strange interaction with a friend. It didn't go down well. What, what was it that I said? Or I feel really bad about that. Or I just had a rotten fight with my partner or something didn't work at work. And so there's these big catalysts, and I think that is the 
that's the driving force behind needing to reflect or analysing what went wrong. And women, again, are really good at analysing or going inside and, and pulling everything apart for a thousand reasons. And I think that's why there has, we, we tend more to be open to going, huh, maybe I do need to understand myself a little bit better. But I think you're right. I, I certainly think there are a variety of reasons that any of this happens, but I suspect that there has to be a catalyst. So I'd be interested to hear from everyone on this call, has there been a catalyst for you that really drove you into looking more inward or understanding yourself more, or understanding your actions and your biases more? This is Nancy here. And I completely agree, Jody. And going back to your first statement, I think that it is very age dependent because I think that at least for me, when I was younger, I probably didn't spend a lot of time reflecting. And now that I am more advanced in my age and my career, now is a good time for me to reflect and understand where I am right now. And then that opens up all kinds of doors uh, to creativity, to vulnerability, et cetera, when you, when you reflect. And so there are, um, you know, there are things that come to the front when you have that catalyst and you do reflect. So I do think that there's an age component to that, similar to, as you mentioned, with gender. I'm going to maybe not disagree, but provide a different perspective on the age relation with the awareness. In my case, I remember when my early years and youth and, and everything, I spent a lot of time, you know, searching and thinking and and doing that type of self-discovery and try many things and, and went many places. And, and it was kind of at some point I thought that it was going to be my, <laughs> the way that I was going to live forever, you know, with that sensation of never arriving to any place. And, and then I got married and had kids and for my family and got busy with my work that that part stopped happening because, you know, I was stable, I was happy. And, but at the same time, I felt that I lost something, you know, that I giving me that space for myself to think. And so it has been now until recently that I have been giving myself the time to reflect and all that. And I do think that it is age-related, but also has to do with the environment and with the people that you meet at a certain age that, that really makes a difference. Because I think that if I would have met you know, people like you or many people that I met later or some guidance at the beginning, maybe I would have probably not that good, but probably I would have arrived to a certain level of awareness or discovery about myself. So I think it's age-related, but also extern I mean, there is an influence from, from outside on the degree of understanding of yourself. And I do believe now that I have my own kids. Of course, they're going to need their own journey, the self-discovery and all that. But I'm trying to provide them uh, messages and learning experiences that they start probably with a clear idea with less unconscious biases with a more authentic of what they want to be. I mean, not like putting like an expectation of, on them and things like that. So that's what I'm trying to, of course, I'm going to screw up some way, but, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that we don't know if the same version of ourselves under different circumstances would have arrived to a different place because of external 
situations in different ages on, on things like that. And also on the topic of gender, I think that more than anything I, is, is uh, how we talk about emotions to our boys. And, and it's, a skill set, it's a skill that you can develop to talk about your emotions, to, to connect how you feel with words and that type of things. Um, so I, I believe that, that if we teach boys in an early age to do that and to be aware, they will also ask questions and they will also be kind of trying to understand what's going on. Thank you for sharing that, Paula. I love that you say it may not be an age thing. And what comes to mind is that old, the concept of having an old soul. It's almost like when you were, if you were younger, but you just seemed to click with certain things differently. And of course, actually, you've made a great point that those external factors, like your environment, and again, I suspect a lot of it does come from either trauma or just you've had to live a different life or a slightly harder life or something hasn't gone as easily for you as others. And that has really caused people to, to grow quite quickly in certain realms. And it's really interesting that we talk about like in terms of the gender and talking about males and that it's emotional and how we actually teach men to be emotional. And I fully admit that I can, when you're talking about that, I'm like, I certainly know that I have a bias in terms of when I talk about masculinity and like we take boys are taught not to cry. Right. And we know that that's something that comes up again and again. And so we're moving away from that. But to be perfectly honest, when I see these really hard men in my life, if one of them starts crying, I don't know what to do because I think it's the same as anyone and, and probably with females as well. There are any strong figures, if I'm looking up to them because they're a rock, because they're stable and you see them crack, we, we talk about vulnerability as being this beautiful thing and then they should be brave and they should be allowed to do that. And of course they should. But then I can see my own bias going, but, but, but what, do I do? what do I do now? And so that is something that I have obviously have to work on myself and I'm hoping that through all of this journey of life that I've got to a stage that when I see this happen, I can step up to the plate myself and go, you know what, what do you need? What do you need from me? What can I give you in this situation? But I, I know for a fact that every time it happens, it still hits me a little bit and it makes me realise again that I have to work on myself because I shouldn't have that reaction of like, <gasps> what do I do? I like to say something because it happens to be, and, and that is the use of should. I should have, I mean, that's precisely, I mean, is, is not to put ourselves in a should or, um, or put the others on that. So it's more about, okay, I'm feeling this. I, I under, let me understand why I'm feeling this, that it's okay. But it's, it's, it's when we judge the judgment is when it's harder to really go deeper and, and, and see where it's coming from. But it happens all the time. <laughs> Going on a bit of a tangent now, how do you feel that our unconscious biases impact the way that we network in different cultural backgrounds or with people from different diverse groups? Jody here. I actually think it's instead of going on a tangent, it's quite similar in some of the stuff from the last conversation that we bring across in terms of how should I act? So it's interesting that we brought up this word should, because I think that this is what happens is you're like, if you're aware that there are, diff there are people with lots of different backgrounds, it's almost like, how should I act in this scenario? 
Um, so I, I think it very much comes down to how are you, what is the networking opportunity? Is it at a gala ball or is it over Zoom? Or like the questions might be the same, but how you actually interact definitely is impacted by the environment that you're in. But I think it's been really interesting, if nothing else, talking to such a beautiful wide range of people through the Homeward Bound cohort because there's so many different cultural backgrounds and we have this thorough understanding of, of here are the, the overarching um, themes behind how we interact with each other. And I think that's really, really important because it's not how we should react, but it's how we've all promised that we will. And so bringing that as, a, as an open, inclusive lens to this idea makes it much, much easier. And I think as long as we can say, you know what, I'm really interested in your culture because of, and you have the ability to ask questions, knowing that it's not coming from a place of hatred, but instead it's coming from a place of genuine curiosity. And as long as the person you're talking to has that understanding as well, because you've all agreed on this platform, that I think that works really, really well. This is Paula. I'd like to bring into the conversation um, the fact that unconscious biases are something that we all have and we will always have it. And there is a reason for that. It, it is useful sometimes when you have to react immediately to make a quick decision. It could save your life. So it's, it's not all bad. Um, so I keep reminding myself that what probably brings a negative connotation of unconscious biases is when you do have the time and you make those assumptions, especially on cultural backgrounds, I really like when people, instead of assuming uh, what my culture is, ask me about it. And that really makes a huge difference. And it could also be different cultural backgrounds, not only on ethnicity, but even like if you have kids or not have kids, if you like sports or you don't like sports, I mean, depending how you were brought up, right? So it really is, is, it's a good it's good to remind ourselves that when you're networking it is for a purpose of getting to know people so keep in mind that precisely what makes you not to know a, pe a person is is assuming who they are and, and that's the whole purpose so <laughs> so it's, it's it's just a reminder that you are not in a hurry you don't need to assume and ask that raises some really, really poignant and salient points, Paula. In the last episode, Jodie mentioned that she was reading a book called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, and I've since bought the book, but I haven't started reading it. But I've been thinking about the concept of networking and how and why we do it. And it's made me really think about how having an attitude of respectful curiosity is perhaps the key. I so I, I ran a mentoring program through SSSI in Australia and we recently had a speed networking event and it was interesting because as I was experiencing it I realized that my understanding of networking has changed over time quite significantly when I was in my undergrad or when I was in my first few years out of uni working I often tended to think that networking was to desperately wander around and find somebody who could do something for me. And these days it is almost the opposite of that. It 
it is for me networking is a really playful fun activity that I really enjoy because it's about getting to know people having curiosity about the differences that we have in our lives and the similarities that we have in our lives and trying to get to know them and work out well how can I help you how can I do something nice for you that might help you and you know probably isn't going to be a big deal for me at all like linking you up to somebody that I know who might be able to share their view of their career path how they got to you know where they are today and you could just have a virtual coffee and have a conversation with them so that's essentially what I spent almost the entire speed networking event doing um, was was you know sharing contacts for people of who they might enjoy having a, a virtual coffee with but I find that attitude to be so much more useful and also really energizing as opposed to how tiring it used to feel to wander around at a conference or an event and just find people and be like can I please have your card what do you do right okay and that's just not any fun at all but having this attitude of curiosity and also thinking about what I can ask them and how I can try to help them in little ways is so much more fulfilling and it's really rewarding it may, it transforms the experience of networking from a chore to just making friends Jody here. I love what you just said, Roshni. I think it's really beautiful that you've kind of showcased that there is this massive transformation. And I think I've said it before, but one of the most poignant things that I've been, ever been told is be interested, not interesting. So this concept of asking questions to get to know somebody, not to spruik who you are as a person is one of the best things that you can do. And you've just said it so beautifully. Like, I love connecting people. I don't need to be in the middle. You just go, you would be great with this person. You guys should talk. And that I find that when you start to do that as a human, you create these beautiful networks and you become known as that person who has a genuine interest in others as well. And so it is much easier. And I always like going to a networking event and saying, all right, I'm going to make so many friends right now. And I love asking strange questions. I do it on purpose because I don't need to know what everybody's day-to-day um, -day job is. I want to know more than that. We, we talk so often on this like really shallow depth, right, about what is, what is your job? Your job doesn't define you. Yep, it is what you do, but it doesn't define you. So it's like how can you really quickly, it's like speed networking, as, as you just said, speed networking. Here's a throw in a couple of curveball questions like, I think that, A, it gets laughter and we all know that laughter is beautiful and it makes really good connections really quickly, but it puts people on the spot so they don't have these pre-prepared answers. So you start to get to know them just that little bit better. And actually, if you go back to the original question about how we're talking about different cultural backgrounds, I think that actually starts to wipe so much of it out. So on another one of our tangents, climate change and social inequality are deeply rooted systemic issues, which are some of the world's most significant problems. They're confronting to face, both in terms of impact and in terms of feeling empowered, to be able to do something meaningful and the broad range of opinions and views that people in society have about them. How can we use our lenses with more empathy when speaking, for example, to climate deniers to have more productive and compassionate conversations? This is Nancy. I'll just start with something small and something I've been thinking about is that Perhaps we should try simply to bridge and have conversations instead of trying to bring people into our fold or seeing our perspective. And we're drawn to people like us. And this goes back to the unconscious bias. And 
being drawn to people like us might be our beliefs or it might be our looks or it might be our careers or it might be our age or it might be our gender or whatever whatever that is but in terms of having to face some of these really really big problems that are facing our globe today we can't do that with just people that look like us or think like us of course and so really thinking about how can we bridge the gaps not necessarily we don't want everybody to look like us and think like us because we're not going to solve the problems that way. So how can we have conversations where we can at least bridge the gap between differences so that we can find those two or three, or maybe it's just one things that are commonalities that we can move forward and really come together on? Uh, this is Paula. I think the first step to build those bridges is to to convey a message of, um, I want to learn, I want to understand you, as opposed to I want to convince you, or I want to make you part of my team. Because I think it's, it's an, everybody feels that very defensive when you feel that you're being attacked or that you're being judged. So I admire people that have the skill to get you to the place where you feel comfortable and then you start sharing and then there is a meaningful information exchange as opposed to as a series of statements that the only purpose is just to convince or to prove that you have the, the that you that you're right so one of the reasons why i wanted to join hb and develop some leadership skills was precisely for being making my, myself more equipped or to to build those bridges and to have better communication skills because i is really crucial for for this environment because as nancy is saying we really need to work together i mean we don't have an option it's just like with the covid is <laughs> it, it requires everybody to follow certain protocols otherwise it doesn't work it's the same with everything so so how do we put the environment in which everybody feels safe to share what what they think and their perspective and and be willing to compromise right because if it's a, if the goal is is either win or lose we're not going to go anywhere Jody here I think, Paula, you said it beautifully. It's this idea that how do we bridge the gap? And also Nancy mentioned that as well, this idea of inclusivity. But again, talking to people because you want to know how they arrived at that opinion. I think that's the most important part is, and again, it's that curiosity component. So not to try and convince someone, but instead understand how they arrived at that decision. And it's really tricky. So I do work in a realm where we engage with the public quite often, the community, we have thousands of people at different events. And sometimes you have people that come up just because they wanna talk about climate change. And as a climate change denier, they, they just want to rant is the easiest way to discuss it. And so when I'm training people as to how to deal with these individuals, we talk very much about, look, I'm sorry, but that for starters, there is people that, that aren't really interested in learning or listening but what they want is they want a platform where they can just speak they want to be heard and so the first thing from us is actually allow them that platform to be heard and then once they've said their piece and be like okay so that's really interesting can i ask how you got to this conclusion 
again, making sure that it's not you talking derogatorily at them, um, but you are coming at it from a place of empathy or love saying, right, your opinion is quite different to mine. And I'm really interested to understand why. So what, what is your background or where, like, where did these thoughts come from? What, what was the defining factors that led you to this belief? Now, for starters, most people won't actually know what those defining factors are. They just know it. They know it to be true. Awesome. Well, can you give me a little bit more information? I'm genuinely interested in understanding because I have such a different idea. So I'd love to know how these two ideas, different, different things come together. So that's the first thing is really, it's interesting that the, one of those things that's come up through all of these questions is that idea of coming at something with genuine curiosity is actually really helpful in so many ways. I'd love to hear other, other thoughts as to how people have done it, but that's, a, that's pretty much how we've always tried to approach this scenario is trying to understand other people and that way, it gives us a bit of context as well. This is Roshni here. I find that that can sometimes be difficult to do because I personally find it quite confronting. If somebody believes something extremely strongly that goes against perhaps my values or something that I really care about, be it climate or something else, I find it really difficult to stop and go, right, I'm going to put my things to the side here and just listen with an open mind to them. I often find my mind closes off when, you know, I get challenged. How have people dealt with that? Because I find that in the midst of a conversation, it can be quite difficult to stop and go, okay, let me breathe. Let me just do this. Let me just be curious. I love that you brought that up, Roshni, because to be honest, it is super difficult and it definitely depends on the context and the question that they're asking, right? If you're really passionate about something and you're like, yeah, this is how it is and I've learned all of this stuff, then of course, when someone's like, ah, uh, no, and I strongly disagree, it's really, really hard to step back. And for, for sure, what I would say to that is it depends on how they've approached you. So if someone's come to you with really strong, you can watch their body language, they're being quite aggressive per se in their stance, they, they're like, this is how it is and I'm really angry that you're even suggesting this and why are you doing this? Then to be, to be quite blunt, it's very hard to even try and have a conversation, which again is that first point of why I said sometimes they just need to rant and you have to let them do that first, which sucks because you don't want to have to take all of that on but some people just need that space. And then you can try and see if there's any commonalities. A, a quick squirrel I would think of is that like when I was working with teachers and students. So the very first day that I met everyone, I'm told that I have, this is in a different job that I don't have now. Um, thank you, COVID. Uh, but we would be traveling together for three weeks. So the very first time we met, I had that two days to win the teachers over yeah they need to know that i'm the best person for the job to look after them and students for three weeks that means i have to sell myself to be amazing that they want to spend that time with me but you also can't pretend not to be something that you're not because we're going to live together for three weeks they're going to see who i am pretty quickly so it's this really interesting balance of how do you converse with someone to get them on the same page or have an understanding or if they're not on the same page at least on the platform where you can have open conversations and go you know what i disagree with you but i'm willing to stay in this thing and know that we are safe and know that we can work together and so in that aspect it was all about finding one commonality 
And if we were using climate change as the example here, you might have somebody really, really angry about it. And you're like, all right, but do you like the ocean? Or do you like birds? Or do you like, I don't know, bacon and egg for breakfast? Anything it is, you're trying to find one commonality. And if you can find one thing, then you can start to build a relationship around it. And when you can do that, you've created a platform where you were able to have discussions, which means you don't have to agree, but you can actually build on that. But it's super tricky. And sometimes you are right. Sometimes your brain shuts off because if someone's being very aggressive at you, you're going to try and protect yourself. And, and that's, that's not, it's not incorrect to do that because that's actually you going, yep, this is how I'm going to protect myself in this instance. And sometimes you do have to walk away and maybe come back at it, go, right, I've just had a couple of breaths. Sweet. Let's talk about this like adults. Just for one final comment related to how to react when people don't agree with you. I think it's not realistic to always try to have deep conversations and get to know people. So you need to choose your battles and you need to choose who do you spend your energy on. So I think it's, it's authentic to say, well, I mean, I don't agree with you. And then, but that's it. I'm not planning to, to keep the conversation or anything or even with your relatives or people that you know. I mean, you can choose not to talk about something. And so it's, it's just not realistic to always try to be in that interested instead of interesting approach. So, yeah, so it's, it's not always like that, like that. So you, you have to pick your battles and pick your people and, and when, when to have those conversations, I think. Such a good point, Paula. Good ways to manage our energy and stay resilient while still working on our assumptions and our unconscious biases. Diversity and inclusion is a topic which is often a constant undercurrent to many conversations in STEM and in many industries. It's well known that having diverse teams leads to better business outcomes, to greater creativity and innovation, and stronger teams who are more than the sum of their parts. Likewise, inclusion is linked to psychological safety and can facilitate stronger team bonds, which bring about greater efficiencies, significantly improved risk management and health and safety outcomes, clearer and more transparent communication and feedback cycles, leading to a strong and resilient workplace culture and higher levels of employee satisfaction. What ideas or advice can you put forward about how we can all be aware of the lenses that we have and leverage them both as comfort zones and discomfort zones? I want to leave you with one example of an experience and which is how I began talking about unconscious biases and that is my own experience of overcoming the unconscious biases that I had about myself and that were very evident when I moved to an environment uh, that was very different. All my unconscious biases, I felt them more strongly so an example that I can give that was a good a way to manage it is that I started building my network with people like me and then I started expanding and expanding. So it's always good to build your network with, with the people that you feel comfortable with and then that will give you confidence and keep in mind to that is only the first step, not to close yourself to that because then you're starting a comfort zone and, and then is where you stay. So that is what I will recommend. So for, for me, it was the employee network, the Latino employee network of my company. That's how I started to experimenting 
that unconscious biases and how other employees will look at us. But then we started networking with other employee networks. So we create a culture inside our company that was very diverse and very inclusive. So that was a really good way to, to manage unconscious biases, to start conversations with your own network and then expand to others. This is Nancy. And yeah, I think I liked Paula's idea of starting with something that you're comfortable with and then gaining confidence and building outward from there into more uncomfortable situations or discomfort zones. One of the things that I wanted to bring up, and it's sort of in response to all these questions, is is that we have unconscious biases as individuals. But then when we're interacting with others, then we have these interpersonal unconscious biases or these interpersonal uh, biases. But then we often bring biases associated with our institution or the workplace that we're in. So then it, it kind of builds into this other level of bias. But then we also, as a social system or as a country, we have these kind of systematic biases, conscious or unconscious. And so I, I think that there, it's it's a difficult topic because it's very layered and it comes from not just from an individual, but also institutional and societal uh, kind of systematic. And so really, I think, again, reflecting on where you yourself are coming from and what you are representing in the conversation or in, I guess we're talking about conversations in this point or, or networking and how are you representing yourself? How are you representing your institution? How are you representing your nation or your country or, or your society? And so just being really aware of those. And I think that many of us or maybe all of us in HB have, have learned from that because in just simply the WhatsApp conversations that we've had or the podcast conversations or the, the um, monthly catch-ups that we've had, we've started to recognize that people come with very different perspectives simply because from the institution that they're from or perhaps from the, the country that they're from. And so, you know, just be, being aware of that, um, I think is really important. That is really well said, Nancy. I think a lot of that was really pertinent. And I guess a couple of things happened as I was listening to you. First of all, from what Paula had to say in regards to how you actually start from the inside and then out. I think for me, what really resonated there was the idea of that you have to be comfortable with yourself first. So we mentioned it earlier that like looks for like right? That's what happens constantly. You're looking for someone that has something similar to you. If you use traveling to another country as an example, how often have you recognized that voice, the sound of someone from your own country? Or if you've been traveling for a long time, it's really nice to be able to interact with someone from your own country because you're like, oh, you just get it. So if we think of that, putting that back into your own words, just then Nancy, in terms of having an understanding of all of these different biases of how do we represent ourselves? How do we represent our company? How do we represent our country? Um, the first thing that that I physically felt then was like, oh my gosh, that is so much to take in. And would you not then suspect that by consciously being aware that, oh goodness, I have to remember all of these different layers that actually you become less authentic because now you're censoring yourself with all of these different lenses on to make sure that you are actually representing your country well, you're representing yourself well, you're representing your, your business well. Um, so if we're talking in the aspect of networking, 
I think it depends on what you're trying to get out of it. And it, uh, like in this particular spot, when we're talking about business or STEM and industry, then for sure, all of those different components come into play. But then I do think that you would step back from your authentic self a little bit because you are conscious that you have to be presenting a certain way with all of these other things taken into account. If you're talking about a bunch of people meeting and you just want to meet for the sake of practicing your networking skills, practicing understanding other people, then personally, I think, yes, those biases might be there and they certainly come into play. But if you can drop them away a little bit, then you start to genuinely be more interested in other people because you're trying to understand those backgrounds and that creates that more diverse um, conversation. It creates more understanding and empathy. And I guess what I wanted to say is really you have to come at all of this from that place of love and empathy, love for yourself and the ability to go, okay, it's okay if I messed up or I asked a question and actually what turns out that it was not appropriate, um, which can happen. But again, you can't learn unless you, you learn from these kind of ideas and mistakes and be willing to talk to people and go, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that, that it wasn't an appropriate question and I'm really sorry, but let's move on. Um, so that was a lot of stuff I know, but really, really interesting. I just physically felt a reaction to some of those things. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's overwhelming. <laughs> this is Nancy. Those are all really good points. I wasn't necessarily thinking that we needed to represent all of these things, but that we just needed to be conscientious of all those different facets. That being said, that is still a lot. <laughs> But I, I wanted to just bring up one other point about networking, and I thought about it earlier, and I, I didn't bring it up, but something, Jody, you said reminded me of a little bit of just living in the moment and enjoying the conversation, because I think that, as Roshni put it really well earlier, is that, you know, you may think of networking as this goal at the end, you know, there's a job there or whatever, there's some connection that's going to happen for the long term or, or later on, you're going to cross paths with somebody. But I wonder about just thinking about networking as the process of having the conversation and exploring and being open to asking questions and, and having that conversation here and now, if that in itself is the most valuable part, right? Because if you're open and you're just there for the moment, then that's when perhaps you can be most vulnerable, but you could also perhaps be the most creative. In the second half of the Special Discomfort Zone series on diversity, inclusion, equity and belonging, today, Jody, Nancy, Paula, Nirvani and Roshni have explored the link between shame and facing or changing our biases, conscious or unconscious, how our biases impact the experience of networking in different cultures, how we can use an awareness of diversity and inclusion when speaking with people of different values or worldviews to ourselves, and the professional benefits to organisations of adapting diverse and inclusive cultures. We've heard about how vulnerability can be a bridge, helping to uncover a shared humanity between people, and how the courage to listen to ideas, concepts and opinions which are vastly different to our own, without judgement or fighting back, can help to bring down walls between people, even with polarising issues such as climate change and social inequity. Most of all, we've heard the message that being curious, asking questions and speaking to people similar and different to us can be so valuable. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.